Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 171 for November 20th, 2008. Your questions, Steve's answers. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. And by GoToMeeting. Stop wasting time and money on meeting in person. Hold your meetings online. You can do more and travel less. For a free trial, visit GoToMeeting.com slash security now. And by Audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit AudiblePodcasts.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that tells you how to stay safe on the Internet. And Mr. Gibson is here. He's kind of like, you know, the um, crossing guard. He's got, his, he's got his little crisscross orange shirt on and his flag saying, do not cross here. <laughs> it is now safe to cross. Steve Proceed Gibson. with caution. Proceed with yeah. caution. That should be the name of the show, Proceed with Caution. That would be a great name for the show, yeah. actually. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's nothing you can do, I mean, except proceed with caution. Yeah. Basically, that's what we're, we're helping to explain to people is, you know, where the pitfalls are, where the potholes are, and uh, and how to behave themselves. So. Proceed with caution. Yeah. Well, we're going to uh, do, we have, today is our Q&A day. I know people yep. kind of are a little confused because uh, we originally were doing this on odd episodes, I mean, even episodes, and then we had an emergency uh, to cover the DNS poisoning issue. And we changed our parity phase. We changed our parity. From even parity to odd parity. Typical uh, engineer. (laughs) Something will happen. We'll have another emergency and we'll switch back over. So just to keep everybody off balance. So even though it's episode 171, uh, it is listener feedback number 54. We're going to do, we've got a dozen questions, including some really good PayPal tips and tricks. Yep. Should be good. Uh, and we're going to get to the uh, latest security news and any addendum or errata from previous episodes. Before we do that, though. Let me say hello to GoToMeeting, our good friends at GoToMeeting. It's a, it's a Citrix product, and Citrix has always been kind of the king of, uh, I, I guess, remote access. They, they, they wrote the remote access routines that are used in, uh, in Windows, and they have used their remote access technology, GoToMeeting and GoToMyPC, to uh, make business easier for many, many years. I've been using GoToMeeting for that long. So go, GoToMeeting, let me explain how it works. You set it up on your computer. In fact, you could do it right now. Go to uh, for free. Go to gotomeeting.com/slash/securitynow and set it up. It'll take a couple of minutes before I'm done. You'll be all ready to go. Now, anytime you know you got a conference call coming up, or you have a meeting and you don't want to fly somewhere or drive across town, and a lot of times we don't want to do that anymore. Make it easy on yourself. Say send them an email. You could actually do it with a couple of clicks of the mouse. Send them an email that says, "Hey, we're going to have a meeting at 11 o'clock. Here's the meeting time. Here's the meeting ID. Go to gotomeeting.com." And you'll be in our meeting, or you can even while you're on the conference call, it's really easy enough that you could be talking to somebody and say, let me, let me, I got to show you this. And frankly, the time to do it is when you hear them drowsing off, drifting off. You hear them sending messages on their Blackberries or just staring into space. Say, Hey, I'd like to show you this. So you, you, you send them the meeting ID. The, all they have to do is go to go to meeting.com. They just go there and they enter the meeting ID. And all of a sudden 
they're seeing your computer desktop on their screen. So they're seeing the PowerPoint or the drawings, the websites, whatever it is you're working on together, whatever it is you're pitching them. Um, you can even, uh, if you want, collaborate on documents. You can say, all right, well, let's, you know, I'm going to share this document with you. You make any typing changes or you make any drawings, any additions, any annotations you want, you can do it too. You can even do training where you say, this is how you run the, use this program. Now you try it and they can use it even if it's not installed in their system because they're using, effectively, they're using it on yours. Go to meeting.com. It's amazing technology. Try it free. Go to gotomeeting.com slash security now. You'll get a month of unlimited online meetings free. I know you're going to want to keep using this. In fact, once you do, you'll be glad to know it is it is the most affordable online meeting solution with a, a, a low, flat fee every month. That means you meet as often as you want, as often as you need for as long as you want. Go to meeting.com slash security now. Give it a try on us for the next 30 days. Go to meeting.com slash security now. We thank them so much for their support of security now. We could, we could do the show like that, actually. One of these days I want to try that way. You could show me your desktop and I could show you. Anyway, let's not get all crazy. Let's not go wild here. Let's get the latest security news. Well, a bunch of stuff has happened. Um, One follow-up on DNS. I'm still very much up to my elbows in DNS stuff. I hope probably, I'm guessing three weeks from now, um, we've got the author of Sandboxy on next week, then a Q&A, probably the week after. I think by then... I'll be ready to unveil the work I've been doing for like the last five months um, on the whole uh, DNS spoofability stuff to allow people to just to check to make sure that the DNS servers they're using cannot be easily spoofed. Um, And in the process, we discovered that uh, we're able to crash a bunch of routers, which is a concern because, as we know, what starts off as a crash is often can be evolved into a remote exploit. So uh, I've also got a router crash test that has evolved out of this so people can see whether their router is crashable and bug their router manufacturers, if it is, to update the firmware, to fix whatever, what might be an as yet unidentified buffer overrun in a router. And of course, that's a problem because if someone sent your router a packet that could take it over, uh, that's a bad exploit. Yeah, no kidding. Anyway, all kinds of things have, ha- have happened. A, a An outfit called the Measurement Factory received a commission to evaluate the status, the current, like to take a snapshot of the current status of the DNS servers on the Internet. They, they grabbed the routing tables from some central routers and used that to determine how many IPs were actively being routed, hmm. and it was a little shy of two billion, which is interesting, since as we know, there's a total of four point three, actually it's four point two nine billion IPs potentially possible, although some are permanently removed, like anything beginning with ten. We know that in the so-called ten dot IP range is reserved for for private networks, so not publicly routable. But this is something that Mark Thompson told me years ago that I, that surprised me is that here everyone's all worried about IP space depletion and running out of IPs, but still only half of the net actually has publicly routable IPs. You know, there are things like, well, for, for example, remember that Hamachi is using the five dot space because no one's using it. It's not assigned to anything. It's just, I mean, that, that's a huge chunk of IP space that is still sitting there because typically they're... They've been allocated to organizations that don't want to let them go 
because it's valuable, even though they're not using them yet. Wow. So, um, so this outfit took, um, look, looked at the routing tables, found the 1.9 billion IPs that were routed, took a random, I think it was 10% sample of those, and sent out probes, DNS probes, just at random to, to find random DNS servers and check to see how, you know, how they were, were performing. Um, they ended up determining, based on their, their sample, their statistical sample, they estimate that there are 11, I'm sorry, oh yes, 11,900,000 name servers publicly accessible on the internet. So just shy of 12 million, 11.9 million name servers on the net. Um, of those, 4.3 were open resolvers, meaning that you could send them a query and they would do the work of looking up an IP address for you and send you a response. And of course, those are what, the, that, that's the source of the vulnerability. So 4.3 of those are open. Of, of those, they found that 25% of the servers that were open resolvers op- that would do open recursion have not yet been patched. 25%. Yes. One out of four servers are still vulnerable to, I mean, really vulnerable to this Kaminsky-style attack, meaning that when you ask them a query or you ask them a question, they launch the query out of a fixed port or an incrementing port, something which is is easily predictable, and that's all you need in order to be able to fake the answers that that router that that, that um, name server is looking for, and poison its cache, such that anybody else using it will then be redirected to a malicious site. I'm gonna say something surprising. That's a lot. I mean, that's, that's a lot. lot. Well, yes, it's a lot. A lot. But it's, I mean, the other way around. I'm surprised. Seventy five percent are patched. Well, you remember a lot of, of a lot of news was made of this. Now, what was really interesting was that as part of this study, a a a survey was sent out, and forty five percent of administrators responding to the survey said that they lack the quote lack the necessary resources to address the <laughs> DNS vulnerability. What Whatever that? that means, we don't know. We don't know. You no, know, I don't have time. It. It, I, I'm I'm busy doing other things. The guy uh, who set it up it doesn't work here anymore, and I have no idea how to fix it. I exactly, it's a, black, it's a black it's a black box, box in the corner. Yeah. It's got cobwebs on it. We're afraid if we touch it, we'll break it, and then we'll we'll never get it going again. Yeah. So we're just leaving it alone. Thirty um, percent wow. of the administrators responding said they do not know about enough about DNS. To make the required change, which is uh, encouraging, not, um, and then uh, and then in, in their analysis they did fingerprinting. That's one of the t- t- technologies I've added to my test. Also, It'll, you'll be able to see what the make, model, and version of the DNS servers you're using are, um, among a whole bunch of other really cool things. Um, uh, and so they found that ninety percent of the DNS servers are now running bind 9 which is you know the latest and greatest and they also from a from a sample they'd made a year a year ago they learned that there'd been a significant decrease in Microsoft's DNS server which frankly pleased everyone because it's not really very secure hmm. um, and they did find That's the one a, you use right 
No, 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 no. I'm I'm using Bind on free B, on free BSD Unix. Oh, I, for some reason I thought you were using IIS on Windows a Windows Server. Well, IIS for for web serving, but not for not, not for not DNS. for DNS. Okay. Yeah, I, I for many reasons I need real DNS. What's what's the name of Microsoft's DNS program? Um, it's just it's just DNS service. Huh. And when you install, for example, the server version of Windows 2000 or two or 2003, you know, it's one, one of the options service. you can just install. Huh. And yeah, I, I actually I had it installed here for a while, just sort of I'm curious about it to see how it worked. And, you know, it's like I didn't see anything wrong with it, but I wanted to go with, you know, real bind and I'm running bind nine also. And then the last thing that was of, of particular interest that they discovered was that uh, there was a distressingly low adoption rate of DNS sec, the DNS security extensions, which we've talked about, which, you know, really do solve these problems. Oh, and that's another thing that I will tell you when you use my my soon to be unveiled test is whether your ISP's DNS servers are supporting DNS security. Hmm. So you'll just sort of get a sense for where your ISP stands relative to others. Mm-hmm. And uh, also I have a DNS benchmark that will allow you to determine the speed of yours versus, for example, open DNS. So you could see whether your in- use of the internet could be faster by switching to some other alternative DNS server. Oh, that's so, good. That's nice. Cool stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, many, as I was running through the Q&A for um, this, the um, I'm sorry, as I was running through all of the user submissions of stuff at grc.com slash feedback, um, I ran across a whole bunch of people that were wanting to bring to my attention that Visa over in, in Europe, in the EU, has released a, a new card that contains a built-in keypad and e-ink display that produces a one-time code for um, part of their visa's rollout of a next generation security technology that's like the verisign card it's yeah in fact it looks like very much i would imagine it comes from the same manufacturer But, but it's a visa card it's a it's an actual charge card it's got a mag strip on it and so you can hand it to, you know, the the server in the restaurant who can scan it just like a regular credit card. But it also has this challenge response technology. Fantastic. For, yeah. So, so, you know, it's not something that's universally available yet. It does require substantial back-end technology in order to support it, to know, you know, in, in order to do the challenge authentication handshake with the card. But it, it you know, it, it's really... A, a very comforting sign because it demonstrates that we're, you know, we're moving forward. And, you know, the only reason you would do something like this is where you have a, you know, a so-called card not present purchase where you're doing an Internet purchase purchase. And rather than having the physical card present, you're, you know, you're reading it out over the phone or over uh, a web form. And so this allows that kind of technology. So I wanted to acknowledge all the people that had had wrote uh, to tell me about it, and we'll certainly be keeping our eye on that. There yeah. was a bunch of security news uh, for the week. Apple has released a, a big update to Safari, which fixed 11 vulnerabilities. Wow. Unfortunately, there have been many complaints of crashes afterwards. So apparently there's some little bug of some sort, doesn't affect everybody, but there's been a high incidence of complaints of, of Safari crashing after uh, the, this update was released. Uh, it's 3.2, 
and it fixed, uh, as I mentioned, 11 security flaws. Um, most of them were, were the, for the Windows version of Safari, and, but a couple were for the Mac OS X version. And the, and the, uh, and the reports are crashing. Are they on both platforms, or are they on Windows mostly? Or? Uh, oh, um, predominantly Windows. I don't yeah. know of any over on the Mac OS yeah. X platform. Yeah, because I haven't seen any, having any problems, but I don't use right. Safari on Windows. So. Um, also, I, I got an update of my use of Firefox to 3.0.4. I would imagine anybody using Firefox would have had the same thing saying, oh, we got a new version of Firefox. You have to shut down and restart Firefox. But I wanted to make sure everyone knew it was also a big update, fixed 11 security, I'm sorry, 12 security flaws. Several were remote execution vulnerabilities. So you'll want to make sure you get that fixed. Half of them, six of them uh, were rated critical. And those that weren't, that were not remote code execution, were technically local denial of service, meaning they would crash your machine, which is not good. Um, Chrome, Google's, you know, browser that's still in beta, I expect to be in beta for a long time, um, has moved forward also. Uh, there was a file stealing hole that was found in Chrome, hmm. which has been fixed. The latest version apparently is a development release that may not yet be available to typical users. Um, and they're at 0 0.4.154.18. That's the latest and greatest from Google, and they've added some features. There's now a bookmark manager in it, and they've reworked their pop-up blocker to be more effective. So, you know, that, that continues to move forward. In some, some dialogue I saw online, um, there were some independent researchers saying, you know, this kind of stuff reminds us that you, a browser probably needs about a year of gestation before, you know, it's the kind of thing you want to jump on uh, and until then, you want to run it you know, like on an experimental box or in a in a secure virtual environment of some sort, because um, there's just you know it takes a while to, to nail all of the the debris and bugs out of anything you know out of a big aggressive chunk of code like this. Well, and the browser is such a you know exposed surface to hackers. That's you know, oh, it's that, that's the, the most critical application, right? Yes, it is now the target. Um, speaking of which. I, I picked up a little interesting t tidbit of news that I knew our listeners would appreciate. Nebuad, the you know the the heinous uh, install their equipment in ISPs facilities that we've talked about extensively, uh, has been sued now by twelve or at least a dozen subscribers. Uh, Nebuad and six ISPs that were using it but have since dropped it like a, a hot potato have been sued. Uh, the, the the suit asks for $5 million in damages and requests that it be moved to um, uh, to class action status. So and, and they're alleging that the 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 web service, the web surfing habit tracking technology and the companies that used it without without customers knowledge violated anti-wiretapping statutes hmm. and people who legal experts who've looked at the suit believe that Nebuad is in bad trouble that is that it absolutely wow. does violate <laughs> anti-wiretapping statutes it's an illegal application yes it's fundamentally illegal um, wow. certainly within some areas to do this. So the good news is the other guys, Form and Front Porch, and anybody else who was thinking this was a good idea, they will, they'll, they're, they're certainly aware of this too, 
And, um, you know, with any luck, they will be staying far, far away from this kind of really invasive technology. And they don't do anything so differently that it wouldn't be any more legal. I mean, it's the same idea. You're using somebody's computer to kind of spy on them or to modify their their uh, content. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. And you, you are you're, you're in some cases you're modifying the content on the fly. But in any event, you are you are definitely reading the pages that they are requesting and you're using the content of their pages and their search requests and all of that in order to target ads at them individually. I mean, it's just it's a bad privacy problem. Well, sorry, it's illegal, guys. Guess you'll have to stop. Oh, darn. Oh, darn. And I wanted to share a really kind of a, a fun and wacky uh, note from a listener of ours. I've, I, dis- I hadn't chosen yet a- a- anything to share with our listeners for, for Spinrite this week. And I encountered one as I was reading through the, uh, all of the input from our listeners. The subject sort of caught my attention because the subject was, thank you. Spinrite got me fired. And I do mean thank you. <laughs> okay. So it's like, oh, okay, what? Uh, okay. <laughs> so uh, he asked to be anonymous. Uh, he sent me his name, but so he's calling himself Scooby Drew. Um, he says, I did tech support for a company that I will not mention because I'm in the process of getting a seasoned job with them. We had a computer crash that had lots of customer. We had, we had a computer crash that had lots of customer information on it, including credit card numbers, addresses, and other personal information. They left the computer out in front of the building. Even if our (laughs) IT guy said, quote, they can't do anything with it other than scrap parts. I wanted to see if there was more to it than that. So being curious about Spinrite, on my lunch break, I picked it up and took it home. Now, scrap I'll parts. Be on- it's scrap parts. Yeah, exactly. They now, I'll be honest. Can't. He says, now I'll be honest. I did download a pirated copy of Spinrite from a dangerous pirate crack site to see if Spinrite really was the amazing program you and Leo go on about. After I let it run over the weekend, I was able to boot the computer up just fine. I went to work with the machine and started it up in front of the IT guys. <laughs> They were shocked and amazed that I was able to, quote, as he, and he has this in quote, work my necromancy on the hard drive, unquote. Later that day, they told the CEO about Spinrite and what it did. <laughs> what? In the C- what is this, in, Spinrite? Is this a in hacker C- program? Well, he says, in the CEO's opinion, he felt that I had stolen personal information and I was fired. Oh, man. Here is why I want to thank you for making Spinrite. Now, the IT department has a copy of Spinrite, and so do I, both legally purchased. And because I was let go after that, it freed me from the dead-end tech support job and gave me the motivation to go back to school and get my bachelor's degree. Good. So thank you, Steve, and thank you, Leo, for helping me finish my education. Yay. As a side note... Please don't read my name. Now they want to hire me back. (laughs) And the customers I had listen to security now. And, well, they know where where and what I'm going for. Plus, I don't think the company would like it if this story about them went public. 
I have an associate degree in software programming and now going for marketing and economics at Slippery Rock University. Right. What a good so, story. That's... That was a great story. Thank you, Scooby. Mm-hmm. You for, know, for I know your... so many people who have been fired or gotten in trouble for demonstrating stupid security policies in companies, including our friend Randall Schwartz. Yes, so, I... <clears throat> Yeah, I, I mean, I hear stories, I, I read stories because I'm keeping my eye on what's going on all the time with people who get into trouble because they say, wait, you know, wh- when they bring it to someone's attention that, you know, it's literally it's shoot the messenger. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's one thing if you're hacking their systems in-house to demonstrate a security flaw. That's probably ill-advised. I think Randall learned his lesson on that one. But they put the computer out on the front porch. Yeah, it's like here, you know, let the people take it away because it's got nothing on it, even though it was full of of critical information. Unbelievable. But I guess uh, maybe a lesson to all of us, Um, even though you know that it's a bad idea, sometimes demonstrating it to the company is a bad idea, too. Oh, man. Yeah. Wow. That's an incredible story. Thank you, Steve. Hey, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to get to your 12 questions, the best 12 questions of the last two weeks. And Steve's answers for those questions, I'll have those for you in a minute. I do want to mention our friends at Astaro Corporation. They're the folks who make the Astaro Security Gateway, which for the last almost, uh, well, we I think almost two years now, we've been talking about getting into our third year with Astaro. A-S-T-A-R-O is the name. Now, if you are a smart IT person, like our, like our last uh, correspondent, uh, and you must be because you listen to this show, uh, you know that it's very important that you have the right hardware protecting the enterprise. That's why small and even uh, big businesses and everything in between use the Astaro Security Gateway. Astaro Security Gateway looks like a router. It looks a little bit you know, nicer than a router, made out of steel and very bulletproof, but it's about the same size and shape. Everything goes in and everything comes out, but man, <laughs> it's doing more than routing. Of course, you have a state-of-the-art Stateful packet inspection, firewall. You've got remote uh, or uh, intrusion protection, um, intrusion detection system. You know, the, that kind of stuff you'd expect. But you also have three kinds of antivirus, two for the email, incoming email, one for incoming web pages. That's important these days. Uh, and by the way, those are automatically updated all the time, but a star up to date. You don't even have to do anything. It's just automatic. You've got anti-spam filtering, anti-phishing filtering. We know you have all the respect in the world for uh, for your users, but why give them why give them the opportunity to do something dumb? Make sure you protect them before they get to click those phishing links. Also, uh, I love this transparent encryption and decryption. If you uh, if you as a company decide that you want to use OpenPGP or SMIME, you can automatically encrypt decrypt everything coming in and going. You can automatically sign everything. I do that. And I think that's a fantastic uh, feature. You're getting the best of breed of open source and commercial software to do all this, also web filtering, content filtering, uh, instant messaging, peer-to-peer control, that kind of thing, anti-spyware. It's, it's, it's everything. Now, look, the best thing to do is to try a demo unit. You've got a, they're offering free demo units and a special deal, by the way, for PIX customers who are moving on because the PIX has been discontinued to Cisco PIX. Call 877-427-8276. That's toll-free, 1-877-427-8276. 8726. Actually, easier to remember, maybe 877, the number 4, Astaro. Same thing. And you can get a free demo unit. If you're a non-commercial user, you can download it from astaro.com slash security now. You can also get a VMware appliance. It's a very 
uh, easy way to test out a Starro, to take a look at it. I'm just so impressed. Non-commercial users, by the way, now also get a Starro up to date, absolutely free. It's, a Starro is a remarkable product. If you're trying to protect your enterprise, and today we all are, uh, and you're looking for a great unit that will do it all for you, call them right now. 877, the number four, Astaro. We thank them for their going into their third year of support for uh, security now. We just uh, agreed to go uh, through 2009, so I'm very happy about that. Could, I think my favorite sponsor, they're just, they're just great a, people making a great product. And it's a great mix for us, too. Yeah, it sure yeah. is, yeah. All right, are you ready for some Q&A? I'm ready. We've got the first five, not surprisingly, are follow-ups from last week's WPA and TKIP hack crack um, episode. So we've had, of course, you know, listeners listening intently. In, in the case of that, that, that last episode, listening in some cases several times yeah. to, uh, to pick up all the details. But some great questions came out of that and a bunch of other stuff, well, too. you put some minds at ease when you explained... Exactly what the problem was. It sure made me feel better. Although I did, I have in the intervening week changed everything over to a CCMP encryption, AES encryption, so that just, yep. just why not? Yep, why exactly. Not? I've done the same thing. It's yeah. like, well, why, you know, why not do it? Why not do it? Uh, ben, actually, two similar questions from two different listeners. Ben Jacques in Des Moines, Iowa, had his thinking cap on during last week's TKIP hack episode. He said, when I heard about the crack, I didn't panic. I knew that tech media often cries wolf on security issues. I also knew that in a few days you'd explain it all on security now. That's a nice vote of, vote of confidence in a way that only you can. Precisely, correctly, in great detail, and most importantly, in a way we can all understand. So, here's my question. You said during the show, if the access point detects more than one um, MIC failure, one MIC failure, what do they call them, Mickey? Yes, it, it, well, Mickey is the, or no, Michael is the... Michael, that's right. Yeah. My, my, Michael is is the protocol or the 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 algorithm that they use. More yes. than one mic failure in a sixty second window, it's going to set off an alarm. He puts that in quotes in the network. Shuts down for sixty seconds, rekeys everyone. When I heard this, alarms went off in my head. Doesn't this open the door for a denial of service attack? My idea is this: an attacker uses the chop chop method to come up with a valid checksum for a packet. You described that last week. Yep. And purposely causes multiple mic failures within the 60-second window, causing the access point to shut down. When the network comes back up 60 seconds later, boom, do it again. And another 60 seconds down, on and on. Later in the show, you and Leo seem to conclude that this new WPA problem is an interesting hack, but it can't use to be caused any real damage. Well, if if this attack is it works, it would render the wireless network unusable. I mean, it's, it's not as serious as, say, WEP, where an attacker can get in and see every packet on the network, but a DOS attack still is a serious threat. Wouldn't you agree? Now, I'm not an expert. I haven't studied this problem as you have, but I have listened to every episode of Security Now at least once. So I'd like to get your thoughts on this idea, hoping it would uh, would not work, and that you'll explain why not. Uh, Bruce Harrison in uh, Durban, South Africa, same problem. He says, hi, Steve, in a way to, to Leo. Listening to episode 160, I'm sorry, 170 on the TKIP hack, I was wondering, if one does generate two or more mic failures in a row, does that stop the access point from working, or does it just stop traffic from the client generated the errors? If uh, the former, it does seem that it would be uh, trivial to continuously bring down a wireless network by generating two or more mic failures in a minute. Warm regards from Africa. So what's the story, Steve? Both guys are absolutely correct. Okay. It is a, it is a known and significant problem with 
with the um, TKIP protocol, um, and this, of course, applies to WPA and WPA2 um, setups, as long as they have TKIP enabled even as an option, because, because the, in recognition of the fact that, that this, this, the use of TKIP is retrofitting a, 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 a very insecure solution, you know, the, the predecessor, WEP, in recognition of that, these guys who designed it saw, well, you know, you know, this is really not as secure as we need it to be. It's as secure as we know how to make it. So we're going to detect hacking attempts and develop a countermeasure against that. Well, as we saw, if the checksum on the packet is wrong, then the packet is rejected as a transmission error. But if the checksum is correct and the mic the 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 8 byte mic um check basically a packet authentication if that fails then the access point says whoa uh the packet was received correctly but it's got an incorrect mic value inside meaning that we're in the process of being hacked well for some reason they say well we don't want to be shutting down and rekeying because of this potential denial of service. We don't want to do it by mistake. So when we get one, we start a 60-second timer. And if we get another one before that 60-second timer expires, two within a one-minute window, then that's really unusual. We need to suspend and rekey. So literally, the access point shuts down for a full minute completely. The whole network goes dead. And then as it comes back up, it, is, it re-keys everybody. And so, unfortunately, what this means is it would be trivial to take the code that already exists. This code is in the air crack code, open source, freely available, and turn this into a persistent denial of service attack. So that, you know, anybody with access to a network that had the TKIP protocol running, even as an option, even if... Everybody using the network were using the CCMP that uses AES encryption. If they're using the good super secure protocol, if TKIP was present, if it was enabled in the access point, the access point would would sense this because um, broadcast packets will still use TKIP, believing that there might be some clients that need that. So even though no clients are using it, it's still being it's still available. You could sniff packets. You could you could maliciously spoof them in a way that would cause the the MIC test to fail, whereas the the checksum on the packet would pass. Access point would think, "Oops, we're being hacked," and shut down. And you could literally hold the network down as long as you wanted, denying it to everyone. You would need to have uh, access to the network by being proximate to it, right? You can't do this over. The internet, you'd have to be right there. Correct. So exactly. So you so could. I mean, let's face it. There's probably a million ways to do a DDoS to a Wi-Fi network, including just getting something on that frequency and jamming it. 
Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think that's why it's not such a huge concern is you're right. All you have to do is just, you know, spew out radio noise yeah. on the same channel that the access point is using. And you're going to if it's loud enough, it's going to it's going to override the the authentic transmission and, and cause all kinds of problems for people. So yeah. it's like, yes, well, you know. People could do that, but at the same time, they're, you know, the hacker is denying themselves access, so that's arguably less of a problem. But well, and they have is, to be sitting in; they have to be within a hundred meters, so it wouldn't be too hard to figure out who's doing it. So, I mean, it's just it's you're exposing yourself, right? Because you have to right. sit there. It'd be one thing if you could do it over the internet, but since you have to well, be physically you know, proximate, you could imagine people like in a coffee shop. If for some reason maybe there were too many people using the network, and so someone said, "Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna clean clean the network off by by shutting it down until people give up and go away." And then I'll, you know, release the attack and I'll have access to the network without all this, you know, too much competition. Right. But definitely possible. It's doable in many, many, many ways. Yes. <laughs> so that's why I think probably nobody's made too big a, a, a stink about this. Yep. It's a known problem. Well, as long as we're doing similar questions, I got three similar questions from three listeners. <laughs> you could just take one, you know. <laughs> all right. Mark Carroll at the British Army Base. We want to give you all credit. Falkland Islands VPNing to UK as a TKIP question to help stop potential hackers, even decrypting small packets. Could one, if their router supports it, set their WPA group renewal key time to a lower value, say 10 or 5 minutes or even lower than that. He says his router default is uh, one hour. It's not necessary for me as my router supports CCMP without TKIP, a Buffalo router, WHRHP G54. Oh, he's using the tomato firmware. That's why. One, two, one. But perhaps that could be some use to people who don't have that luxury. Increasing your default uh, group renewal key time. Camp C in Melbourne, Australia wonders about group key renewal as well. You mentioned in episode 170 that the method requires 12 minutes to perform the chop chop and that routers rekey every hour. All of my wireless routers allow the changing of the group key renewal interval. Would reducing this timer to 10 minutes eliminate the, uh, the limited attack? Ted also came up with this idea. He's in Research Triangle Park, North Carolina. He says, I have to stay with TKIP. I have a PDA that only supports TKIP. This is not unusual, by the way. Same thing with WEP. People often are stuck with older hardware that forces the use of less safe protocols. He says, as it sounds, though, exploitation of the small hole would require 12 minutes. Uh, I run DDWRT, another another, uh, patch firmware like Tomato Router, on my Linksys WRT54G router, which has a lot of options, as I'm sure you know. So I just changed my uh, key renewal interval to 11 minutes, one minute shorter. Does that sound like an effective patch? Thanks again for the superb podcast. My coworker and I eagerly await the posting time each Thursday. What do you say, Steve? Well, and I should say, I you know, we read three. There were many people. I, I really appreciate. Clearly, people are listening yeah. so closely that there's th- and and you know, we've got smart listeners who are saying, "Wait a minute, okay, um, if we need to get the, we need to determine the last twelve bytes of the packet, and the way we determine each byte is by successfully successfully changing that we we take a bite off the end we fix the checksum so that it works but in the process we're going to get a mic failure and the, and so when that happens we know that we got we guessed the bite that we chopped off correctly but we now have to wait for that 60 second timer we talked about in the first question we have to wait for that 60 second timer to expire 
before we try to get the, the next bite, which means it's absolutely the case that there is no way to perform this attack in fewer than 12 minutes. So these guys are saying, you know, all of the routers that they discuss and, you know, many other access points do allow you to change the rekeying interval from an hour to whatever you want. Normally it's specified in seconds. So they often have 3,600 seconds, which is an hour. Um, But for example, 660 seconds is 11 minutes. And so the, it's, it's interesting too, because the attacker would, if you really wanted to perform this attack, remember that it generally takes, you know, 12 to 15 minutes to, to get all of this work done. Well, you don't know. Okay. So 12 to 15 minutes is, you know, a quarter of an hour. So you might have the access point rekey itself right in the middle of your attack anyway, just because, you know, an hour, you know, only four of those fit into an hour window. And so just by chance, you might have, you know, the, the hourly rekey occur. Ah. So, so part of the attack of, of an effective attack would probably be to wait for a rekeying because then you know that it just happened. You know that presumably there won't be another one for an hour unless somebody was wise to this and brought the rekeying interval down to, you know, something less than 12 minutes. Doing so prevents you from being able to guess the to get confirmation of all 12 bytes within 12 minutes and you're out of luck because as soon as the rekeying occurs everything changes there's no, you know none of the bytes you guessed until then are useful then under rekeying so so yes absolutely it is the case if someone has to continue using TKIP and your router allows you to bring that interval down um, that completely defeats the attack. Hmm. Well, there you go. These guys are sharp, sharp cookies paying attention. Dennis Wigmore in Port Hope, Ontario, Canada, thinks he may have found a faster approach for TKIP hacking. <laughs> Man, I'm impressed. So I was listening, uh, you know, last episode, you explained uh, we'd have to wait a minute to continue every time we uh, correctly guessed a valid byte of the keystream. What about hitting up the deauthentication attack? We forced them to reconnect, send out another key. Couldn't we do this until we had enough information to go from there? That would dramatically speed it up, wouldn't it? As I know, this is only related to TKIP injections, but wouldn't this be a quicker method than just active listening? Well, no. Oh. Um, what, what Dennis missed is that we're, we're not trying to get the key. So w- what we're trying to get is we're trying to get a sample stream of pseudo random data emitted by the key for a for a given packet and it's it's only going to be valid for that given packet so the idea is to just change the data in the packet but leave everything else the same leave the packet number the same because that determines specifically which chunk of pseudo random data that is going to be used in that packet so if we were to cause a a, a deauthentication and reauthentication, that would be a rekeying, and so we're back to square one again. So even though you could certainly do that in much less than a minute, you you every time that happens, you know nothing about where about the new key 
So anything you learned previously would just be washed away. And that is specifically why you don't want to allow a rekeying. If you're a bad guy, you don't want the rekeying window to close on you when you're mid attack because right. you just have to start again. Right. <sighs> okay. Mike in Salt Lake City has an important note about Wi-Fi QoS. We, we had mentioned that, uh, if you, that you need QoS turned on. He says, I just wanted to, for this hack to work, I just want to send my thanks for the good TKIP hack show. I checked my router. I do have TKIP enabled. I need to, again, legacy hardware. I, I went to check QoS. I couldn't find it. It did, however, have an option called WMM. I did some research, found out that that's the same thing. So now that's disabled. I just want to let you know so you can notify listeners about the distinct acronym. I never heard of WMM. Yes, it's Wi-Fi Multimedia. And he's right. I I should have mentioned this last week. That is what many routers call quality of service. It it is a subset of the 802.11e subspec. Um, What it does is, oh, and I should say, WMM is like WPA and WPA2. It is a certification and it is a trademark of the Wi-Fi Alliance. So newer routers, if you look at the feature list they have, you'll see WMM, which stands for Wi-Fi Multimedia. What this does is... Why invent a new acronym, kids? I know. know? I know. I know. Stupid. Just so they could trademark it. It, Well, so they could trademark it and so they... And, and exactly. And so so that it's something that people can only put on their box if the Wi-Fi Alliance has had a chance to check their hardware. I mean, I really fundamentally, I really agree with the value of somebody certifying interoperability. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, it'd just be a pain in the butt to buy something and not know if it was going to work. Right. With, OK. You know, so so, you know, that's good. So what they've done is, and I have a feeling we're going to do an episode on this because it, it's going to be important moving forward. They assign four different broad categories of traffic, voice, video, best effort, and background. So as you would imagine, voice is the highest priority. Any traffic that is tagged as voice traffic gets to use the router with gets to use the airwaves with minimal delay. Video is second priority. Best effort is default. So anything not tagged is default. And then, as being sort of a good citizen, you can tag traffic as background, and it's the lowest priority. Meaning that you know when the when the airwaves are free and there's nothing going on, uh, then the background traffic will have an opportunity to flow. So, you know, again, you it's it's all about optimizing the use of a limited resource. You know, the you would not want software that said, oh, I, I want, you know, much better download speeds. So I'm going to tag myself as voice traffic. So I always I always get more, um, you know, in doing so, you would corrupt any real voice traffic that was that was also trying to use that same Wi-Fi access point. Because there would be some big bulk download going through with with the same level. Now the it's 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 incumbent upon the applications to perform the tagging. So it's not something that's done automatically. Which I was a little sorry to 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 see in the specification because arguably you could say okay you know web traffic on port eighty is not and especially TCP 
is not going to be voice. Voice is going to be UDP right. traffic, as 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 we know, as, as opposed to over a um, a TCP connection that does not carry voice very well. So they could have done some some things smart by default, but apparently they haven't because you do require application in order to do tagging. But with any luck, applications like Skype that are all about quality and voice over IP, you would imagine that Skype probably is tagging their traffic as voice in the case that it might be going over a Wi-Fi access point and, and want to maintain the highest quality possible. Right. Yeah. So WMM is QoS. It is QoS. And if, oh, and here's the point. If you have, if you need to use TKIP because you've got legacy hardware and your access point says either QoS or WMM, disable WMM. In doing so, you've turned off quality of service support, and this hack will not function. Okay, good. So that does. So work. that's the cool thing. Yes, it absolutely does work. Disable WMM Wi-Fi multimedia. That is QoS, and without that, the the the, the trick these guys use of allowing a replay attack, because that is something, you know, basically when I mentioned before, we're changing just the part of the packet. We're, we're, we're changing the payload, but there's a lot we can't change. Part of what we can't change is the packet number. And so by not being able to change the packet number, the replay protection comes in and prevents us. We would normally reject that packet because it's already been used, but they use the quality of a service hack in order to get around that. So if you turn off either QoS or WMM, Wi-Fi multimedia support, in your router, then you've shut the hack down too. Now, you, if you happen to be using voice over, um, uh, voice over IP through a Wi-Fi connection, you might find that there was some difference. Although my sense is, I mean, you hadn't even heard the acronym or, or that, 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 no. that ac- acronym before. My sense is this is still very new and not yet widely deployed. So it's... Probably nothing is using it anyway. It's a, it's one of those features that's there for the future, not getting heavy use yet. Yeah, VoIP does use QoS, but usually they use their own router, and usually they want to be wired. In fact, in order to do it, they want to be outside your router, connected directly to the uh, internet. Right. They want like nobody in the way. Right. Which means they're probably doing some sort of hacked QoS. <laughs> Uh, Paul Kamei in Kanaohe, Hawaii, has a great question about Wi-Fi encryption. What a surprise. Steve, during the TKIP hack show, I've listened to it several times now, by the way, it sounds like the IP address fields in the Wi-Fi packet are encrypted along with the data. If that's so, well, how can this packet traverse a network? Even with the MAC addresses in the clear, it doesn't sound like enough information is available to send the packet across the country. Your thoughts? I thought this was an interesting question because he's right. The IP, the source and destination IP addresses are encrypted. So it's only when they're decrypted that that anyone knows, you know, where these are bound for. The what's important to recognize though is that within a single network, within an Ethernet style network, whether it's a wired network like we all have at home, or a wireless network, the addressing from one adapter to the next is not done over IP. IP has nothing to do with it. It's the MAC address. The, it, it's that 48-bit MAC address, which is composed of a 24-bit vendor 
field and a 24-bit device field together making 48 bits. That's the entire addressing information within the network. So th- so that's why that is not encrypted and cannot be encrypted because that 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 is the way the packet physically gets gets seen by the receiver. Once it's seen, then it's decrypted using the shared key in the case of of um shared uh pre-shared key wireless either TKIP or the CCMP AES style the good still still strong and and believed not to have any of these weaknesses um technology once it's decrypted then the machine is able to look at the packet and see whether the destination IP is for is one one or more of the IPs that that machine may have because as we know it's possible for computers to have more than one IP and this is the way they can have more than one IP they can only have one MAC address per adapter but that adapter could be so associated with more than one IP so the machine says oh is this an IP that that is mine and if so then it proceeds to process the packet further now as for how can a packet who that's encrypted whose IPs whose whose source and destination IP addresses are encrypted how could that as he asks cross the country well this is a, a, a source of another pro, another set of problems with with you know potential with Wi-Fi and that is the nature of the gateway which is typically the access point which is also normally a router the nature of the gateway is that when the packets which are encrypted are received at that at that gateway router access point just as they come in they're 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 received because they've got the gateway's mac address so as I, exactly the way it works with a client the the access point will decrypt the packet in the clear and then look to see where it's going it will typically have an external IP address that is not part of the local network, but part of the external network somewhere out on the network or out on, on, on the wide global Internet. And so the router does what a router does. It says, oh, this is for outside. So it shoots it out of its WAN port. Notice that it's been decrypted in, yes. the, in, the, in the process of crossing that router. So, so it's only every, encrypted in, internally, never externally. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and in fact, that's that's one of the interesting things that can be done. One of a of a, a, a well known attack that was primarily used earlier on about WEP, but it's still a concern in some cases about TKIP. If you can arrange to have like even just a ping, if you can arrange to have some sort of packet with known data sent into the network, which you're able to receive. If you, for example, say that you know how a, a ping packet is able to carry a payload, so you could have a ping packet with just all zero, just filled with zeros. If you could get that into the network and receive it, then for that particular destination that had a unique key, you end up with the the um, encryption stream that was you that it was used to XOR against that plain text which is all zeros so it's it's just the the key stream Excellent. so so because you have, you've essentially you've gotten the access point to perform encryption for you on a known packet and as we know 
if you know what the packet is, you just XOR that with the encrypted data and you get back the key stream, as we talked about last week. So anyway, there are it, it's it's unfortunate that we're dealing with this legacy technology that just uses exclusive or and pseudo random streams for encryption because it's just really never was very secure and it's it's tremendously good that we've gone to AES and certainly in the future we're going to see more and more equipment moving in that direction. Matt in Howell, New Jersey wants to add just a dash of salt. He says, "Hi Steve, Leo, been a listener since episode one. Love the show. I'm a computer science student, and many times lectures uh, were just." refresher courses on something I'd already learned on security now. I was in the lab last week and a teacher was about to start a class. He said I could stay for his lecture as long as I didn't cause any disruptions. <laughs> I stayed to finish my lab and listened in on his lecture. Uh, it was for a graduate course and it was all about hashing. This is a smart kid, I can tell. Something he mentioned at the end of his lecture caught my interest. He described something called a salt value, which as far as I could understand was a constant that is mixed into the value being hashed to increase randomness. Uh, am I right? If not, can you explain this to me? What is salt? Thank you, Steve, for your supplementary education. Um, okay, so we have well-known secure hash functions. Um, MD5 is a hash. SHA is a hash. Um, the idea being, and, and we've discussed this you know, in episodes long ago, that a, a hash function is a, is a so-called one-way function, meaning you put any stuff you want into the front of it. And when you're all done, you read a value out, which is essentially a signature. It it can be thought of as like a signature for everything that you put in. Now, the reason a hash is cryptographically strong is it is, it is impossible, uh, you know, within, or I should say really, really, really infeasible to, deliberately get a signature out for something that, that, that you put in. If you make a change at all to anything coming into the hash function, you get something completely unrecognizable out. You know, that is for like for any change you make, half the bits are going to be different. So it, it's, you know, there's no way to, to figure out, given what you got out, what it was you put in. But it is the case that that every time you put the same thing in to, for example, MD5 or SHA1, when you put the same thing in, you get the same thing out. Well, now that's important because if, if someone makes a fingerprint, for example, people who download software on the net may have seen where source code will be available and then the MD5 will be given for the source code. Well, that allows someone to receive that source code and to perform their own MD5 hash separately, that is to recreate the signature that was originally created by the person who was offering the source code. Then you compare the MD5 listed with the MD5 you've got, and that verifies that you're using an exact copy of of whatever it is that was originally run through the hash. So it's important that... Their MD5 is the same as your MD5, that, you know, that, that SHA1 is universally used in the same way in instances where you want fingerprinting. Well, there is a downside to this, and that is, for example, with passwords. If, if passwords 
for example, were only hashed, for example, with MD5, you could do something called a pre-computation attack. Um, and it, it's popularly known as rainbow tables because the the rainbow technology uh, that's been used for, for anti-software uh, hacking and anti-piracy uh, was using an unsalted hash for a long time. And the idea is that you 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 take like a, a whole bunch of dictionary words and you hash them into their result. Then then if you have the ability to see what the hashed secret password is, you simply do a comparison between the, you, this large dictionary you've built of already hashed things because you can compare that much more quickly than you can perform all the hashes. So the idea is you only need to do the hashes once to create all of the results of the hashes, and those you can compare very quickly. When you get a match, you know what the original password was that created that. And there are, on the net, you can download huge, huge tables of of pre-computed hashes to use in hacking. Well, the reason that works is the hash that was used to create the password is the same hash function as was used to build the pre-computation table. If you added a little salt to the hash, if, for example, the, the, the system that was hashing the passwords, if it simply put in some pseudo-random stuff before the password then essentially what you've done is you've created a keyed hash. You've created a a hash that uses a standard function, but this salt is a key. And unless you know also the key, you're never going to get a hashed value that matches. So it's a way of taking a standard hashing function, but for your particular purpose, for example, just verifying passwords, you never need to have that transportable. Unlike the instance I gave where you download software and you need to compare hashes, in this case, a system that's a closed system merely wants to verify that the same input generates the same output, but it doesn't ever need to compare it with anything else. In that case, you want to make a keyed hash by adding some salt. Just put something else in in addition to to the normal input and you're going to get a hash value out that's completely different. So that's what salt is. Very cool. And uh, you've mentioned it, I think, before in the program. Probably. Yeah. Sounds familiar to me. Uh, Rodney Morton from Round Rock, Texas, on assignment in Germany, has the sniffles. He says, I I read the following article about keyboards being remotely sniffable. Yeah, in fact, I meant to ask you about this because I just saw this myself. Yep. I want to have your take on it. It's a BBC article. He says, The article says, quote, keyboard sniffers to steal data. Computer criminals could soon be eavesdropping on what you type by analyzing the electromagnetic signals produced by every key press. The attacks uh, worked at at a considerable distance, like across the office, like 20 meters. Have you heard about this? Oh, yeah. I'm looking at the article. It says, by analyzing the signals produced by keystrokes, Swiss researchers have reproduced what a target typed. The security researchers have developed four different attacks that work on a wide variety of computer keyboards. 
The results led the researchers to declare keyboards were, quote, not safe to transmit sensitive information. The attacks were dreamed up by a doc- by doctoral students, Martin, um, oh boy, uh, <laughs> Martin, uh, Martin, and his friend, uh, uh, Sylvian, uh, from the Security and Cryptography Laboratory at the Swiss Ecole Polytechnic Federal de, looks like Lausanne. Uh, EPFL, thank goodness for acronyms. The EPFL students tested 11 different keyboard models that connected to, to a computer via either a USB or a PS2 socket. So these were not wireless keyboards. The attacks they developed also worked with keyboards embedded in laptops. Every keyboard tested was vulnerable to at least one of the four attacks the researchers used. One attack was shown to work over a distance of 20 meters. In their work, the researchers used a radio antenna to fully or partially recover keystrokes by spotting the electromagnetic radiation emitted when keys are pressed. In a web posting, they added, quote, no doubt that our attacks can be significantly improved since we used relatively inexpensive equipment. In videos showing their early work, the researchers are seen connecting keyboards to a laptop running on battery power. They avoided using a desktop computer or an LCD display to minimize the chance of picking up signals from other sources. Details of the attacks are scant, but the work is expected to be reported in a peer-reviewed journal soon. The research builds on earlier work done by University of Cambridge computer scientist Marcus Kuhn, um, who looked at ways to use electromagnetic emanations to eavesdrop and steal useful information. So, you know, we've talked about this kind of thing um, in various um, in various different for, um, formats in the past. You know, traditionally, this is what um, was known as Tempest, where where it was possible to to aim an, a directional antenna at a CRT. And the CRT generated electromagnetic radiation in a in a defined pattern that was de- exactly dependent upon what the dis- what, what was showing on this on the screen because the the electron beams were being turned on and off to to energize um, and illuminate the phosphor on the back of the glass of the screen and it turned out that you know you could it was possible to decode it. So it's really not surprising when you think about it, but this demonstrates, you know, I mean, proves that that typical computer keyboards, which use a, they're, they're being scanned electromagnetically. They're, there's a scanning process going on in order to, in order to essentially pick up which keys are being depressed. So when you put down, well, when you press a key, there's a an event that occurs, which can be, you know, a, a change in the scanning pattern. That can that is that is always generating a weak transmission from the keyboard, and the act of typing generates enough enough output, enough radio frequency interference that it's possible to determine what's being typed. And that's that's not using any sort of wireless. You know, we've talked about the really weak single byte XORing encryption that's being done by many insecure wireless keyboards. This is, you know, wired USB and PS2 keyboards. This is something uh, similar to what they call VanEck freaking, where you can yep. see, monitor the electromagnetic radiation of uh, monitors 
through a wall and see what the monitor's on the monitor. Yep. Um, which I, I don't know if it's science fiction or real, but uh, that's what they call it. Um, Mark Piper, writing from an undisclosed location, wants a hard drive password. I understand now most hard drives have the feature to request a password on startup. How is this feature typically activated? I can't seem to find it anywhere in my BIOS configuration. If my BIOS doesn't support it, is there anything I can do short of whole disk encryption to require pre-boot authentication? Thanks in advance. I think we talked about this before. This is something IDE has had for years. Yes. In fact, I I don't think there's a drive on the market now that doesn't offer this as an option. Unfortunately, you absolutely do have to have support in the BIOS because the it is before the drive can be used at all it needs to be given the password that the BIOS knows to contain either it's in the BIOS or it's asking you for it depending upon how your security setup is working in the computer it might be that you authenticate for example by swiping your finger on a fingerprint reader that authenticates you to a a TPM the trusted platform module in the um, in the BIOS, that then unlocks the key that the BIOS gives to the hard drive in order to unlock the hard drive in turn. The problem is until that's done, you can't read anything from the drive. So there's just there's no way to do it. I actually came up with a an interesting idea a while ago um, that I never implemented in a in a in a product either commercial or freeware, where you could you could boot from a floppy or a USB device, it would support that function that the BIOS lacked and unlock the hard drive and then transfer the boot over to the hard drive. But I've never known that that's been done by anyone. I never got around to do it, and I've got so much stuff on my plate now. <laughs> there's no way that's going to happen. Yeah. But But the answer is, unfortunately, if you poke around your BIOS and you cannot find anything about establishing a hard drive password, then the BIOS doesn't support it. You might, if this is, for example, a laptop, you might check to see whether there's any newer firmware for the laptop because it is a feature which is appearing more and more uh, currently in in you know in late model laptops and in late model biases. So you might find that updating your BIOS would allow you to suddenly have that feature where you didn't before. But uh, without going to extreme measures, uh, if the BIOS doesn't support it, there's really no way to get that hard drive to the to the password to the hard drive in order for the BIOS to boot it. And this is different from the uh, password protection and uh, the more modern like Hitachi's the encryption that's built into the hardware drive itself. This is something um, else. This is an IDE password basically. Well, yes, exactly. So it's not whole drive encryption. Right. It's essentially the drive is locked. So even though the the, the data out on the drive is still in the clear. You just you can't get to it at all because it's got that it's got that password. Although is it, pretty, is it pretty secure? It's 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 good for thwarting most people. But if you had a government subpoena, the government could go to the hard drive manufacturer right. and say, "We you know here's a court order. Remove the lock from this drive." And they could definitely do so in order to unlock the drive, and then all the data that is available on the drive would be in the clear. It's not as secure as full drive encryption. So don't confuse it with that. Right. John in Columbus, Ohio, wonders how universal plug-and-play should be. He says, hi, Steve. I'm wondering if I should 
still be disabling universal plug-and-play on my wireless router. I wasn't sure if Microsoft solved the buffer overflow issue or not. Thanks to keep up the great work. I, I disable it all the time on every router. I know you do. In fact, I was listening to you, Leo, when you were having problems because with the... You. The, <laughs> you were having problems with uh, a new router that you had installed, and it, I think it needed to be configured for VPN use or something, and you thought, well, maybe I'll try turning it back on to see if that will solve the problem. Um, John's question confuses a couple different things, but but there was an important point that I wanted to, to sort of clarify. He's talking about a Microsoft buffer overflow, which existed long ago in the universal plug-and-play service that was running by default in Windows. In order to deal with that, and this is in the era before Service Pack 2 that has the firewall on by default, in order to deal with that, I created the little freeware Unplug and Pray. And all Unplug and Pray does is make it trivial for anyone to disable that service because most people at the time had no use for universal plug and play. That is, and so what happened was in original versions of XP that did not have the firewall turned on by default, it turns out they were exposed to a, a buffer overrun vulnerability that was being, that was widely um, exploited until Microsoft um, brought up their XP firewall and issued a security patch in order to, to close that. My feeling has always been, let's not have services and open ports unless we need them. So I've always been annoyed that Microsoft was running all this stuff by default. And that's, of course, why early on Microsoft had such a bad reputation for security. Being behind a router, of course, further protects you. Now, when John asks, should I be disabling universal plug-and-play on my, on my router, the, the answer is absolutely. There are known Trojans and malware which are now plug-and-play aware. I mean, I predicted this years before it actually happened. It has happened. So the idea is you can get malware into your machine, for example, which you invite in through a browser vulnerability. The malware will send a packet out in a broadcast packet onto your LAN looking for your router through universal plug and play. The router says, oh, hi there. Yes, I'm here. And, and the malware says, ah, thank you. Please open the following ports. Mm -hmm. And the router will dutifully do so. There is no security, believe it or not, built into universal plug and play. Nothing that prevents something on the inside of the network from accessing the universal plug-and-play service that is actively exposed and unfortunately often turned on in routers. And you won't get a warning or anything? Nothing. The firewall won't tell you? No, there's no... No, I mean, again, this is Microsoft making sure it's all easy. Yeah. We just want, you know, when you plug in your refrigerator... We want your, everything to be discoverable and for all these different services to expose themselves so people so that everything just kind of works. Unfortunately, that implies that everything, every single thing within your network perimeter is trusted. If anything isn't, if anything is compromised, then, and for example, universal plug and play, which it's, it's essentially, it is a programmatic access to your router's API. That is anything you can do from the screens, and in some cases even more than you can do through the user interface, you can can be done silently without your knowledge behind your back. 
like setting up a DMZ or opening ports mm. that then, of course, just allow the floodgates because it's like not having a router anymore, certainly not one that you can trust. You know, where you really um, get people uh, using this is Xbox 360. A lot of kids want to use Xbox Live, which lets them uh, play games, start games with other people on the Internet. And the Xbox, I think, in a very irresponsible way, uh, will check your network and say, if you don't have universal plug and play on, it will say, oh, you have limited connectivity. Yeah. And uh, I get I get calls all the time on the radio show. Uh, and what's so annoying, Leo, is you only need to map a few ports through the router to the Xbox in order for it to say, oh, you've got excellent connect, uh, connectivity. Yeah. It, it's simple to do, but again, but you're, you're right. They just say, oh, turn this on. And Well, oh, and most people, you don't really want, I mean, most people are probably, when people call me, I say, well, you got to do power, you got to do port forwarding. And they go, huh, what? Yeah. They get, they get nervous. So I see why Microsoft turned this on, but it's unconscionable. I mean, they really are encouraging people to turn on universal plug and play without explaining to them any of the risks. Yeah. You know, they're really scaring them into it. And it just makes me crazy. I get, I get calls about that all the time. John H. Story in the United Kingdom wrote with the subject, Port 1029 open. You must get, you probably get a hundred of these a day. Port XYZ open because of, because of Shields Up, right? Right. Hi there. How do you close this port externally? What do you recommend? I'm a beginner at computing. Best regards, John H. Story. Well, this was, you know, obviously a very short question. He, something is telling him port 1029 is open. It's probably Shields Up which is telling him 1029 is open. And that's a problem because it means that he doesn't have any other protection between his computer and the internet. That is, there's no router and it sounds like his firewall is down because the, even the, the, even the XP built in firewall would recognize that port 129 is only meant to be open internally within the system. And, And if you look, you know, we talked about, um, I guess it was a couple of weeks ago, Netstat and, and the mysterious self-closing of the Netstat mm-hmm. window, because um, I, I imagined that, that the, li- the listener was e- entering it at the run line under the start menu rather than starting up the, a DOS box separately. The Netstat will show you often a number of very low numbered ports, um, like starting at 1025, 1026, 1027, down very low number, just over 1024, which is the boundary. And those are typically ports that are opened by processes within the system that want to use the networking stack for talking among themselves. So that's meant to be local and never meant to be exposed to publicly. However, if you've got no firewall on the computer or if, or if the, your XP firewall is turned off or it has been expressly configured to, to allow one or more of those ports to come through, they'll be exposed. So when he asks, how do you close it externally? This is not something you can stop. That is, you can't stop the process that is opening to 129 because it's it's probably service host, that ubiquitous yes. service carrier inside Windows. Which is, and you don't know what it really is. Exactly. Yeah. So what this does say is, that your firewall must not be currently enabled. Now, that's also surprising because XP is so annoying now about making sure you've got your firewall enabled. I, you know, I say annoying tongue-in-cheek because I mean, you, we really want it that way, especially for um, a, a beginning user of computers. So I would explore 
whether the firewall is enabled. And uh, in the firewall configuration, there are various overrides that can be applied. You really want to turn those things off. If you're a beginner, you probably don't need them turned on. Maybe something installed itself that wanted to make an exception for itself through the firewall, which is on that port. Um, but, you know, it, it's worth pursuing why this thing is open to the outside world, because that's not usual. Let's take a, a, a little break here. And when we come back, uh, we're going to uh, get two really good tips for PayPal. What do you say? PayPal tips and tricks. PayPal that sounds great. tips and tricks. Before we do that, I do want to mention our good friends at Audible.com. Those are the folks who provide all those wonderful audio books. You, and, well, you, not you, Steve. You, listener, and I <laughs> enjoy. Steve's still stuck on his Kindle, but let me tell you, listening to books is such a pleasure. I I listen all the time now. I mean, I listen when I walk to work. I listen when I'm in the car. I, it's so bad. Well, I listen when I drive carpool. My kids go, what are you listening to? Hey, listen, you can learn something. Audible books, 51,000 titles. And we like to, on the show, we like to recommend a title. I just uh, noticed that uh, I read somewhere that uh, somebody's talking about what Barack Obama is reading as he's preparing for presidency. And he's reading one of the books that I uh, I finished not not too long ago, that and I really enjoyed. Jonathan Alter writes for Newsweek, wrote a book called The Defining Moment, FDR's 100 Days and the Triumph of Hope. Now, he wrote this a couple of years ago. It's not it's not the hope that uh, Barack Obama was talking about. It was the hope that uh, when FDR took over from Hoover, uh, that he could get us out of the Great Depression. And in 100 days, he passed much of the uh, legislation for the New Deal. It's a fascinating book about FDR, more than just those 100 days, really, about FDR as president, uh, and just a really interesting guy, and a fascinating book. Highly recommend it. It is one of many books on history, on politics, uh, uh, on self-help, on education, on fiction. His, I mean, any topic you'd like, sci-fi and fantasy, that you can get from audible.com. This book could be yours free. If you haven't signed up for Audible yet, just go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now, audiblepodcast.com slash security now, and uh, you too can get this book absolutely free. When you sign up, you get a credit toward any free book, this or any of the other 51,000 titles. There are so many good books. It's hard to know where to start. That's why we like to recommend some. Just give you a place to start. This is a great one. I really enjoyed listening. Uh, Grover Gardner reads it. He does such a good job. The Defining Moment from Jonathan Alter. Our recommendation of the week, but my recommendation for you, try Audible. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. You are going to love it. I know I do. Let's uh, move on now to uh, our um, topic of the day. Steve Gibson is, uh, or our tip of the day is a PayPal tip. We got two different ones from our listeners. Uh, I know you, I use PayPal for donations, so I'm always always interested in PayPal tips and tricks. Uh, starting with Mike O'Hare in Georgetown, Massachusetts, he has a PayPal workaround. It says Steve, listening to Security Now podcast 169, you said PayPal only accepts a checking account number. What I did to get, I guess when you, um, I, well, I don't, I, you can use a credit card, but eventually you have to give them a checking account, right? Well, the 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 the, the problem is that they always default to a credit to a checking account. Oh, right. So you're having right. so you're having to manually override that. But more importantly, when you use their one-time credit credit card number generator, 
There's no way to override that. It insists on pulling from a checking account. Ah, okay. So he says, what I did to get by that was open a savings account, quote, in my bank specifically for PayPal use. I can then transfer whatever money necessary from my checking account into this savings account to cover PayPal purchases. PayPal's happy, and I'm happy they don't have access to my checking account. And I imagine he keeps the balance at zero unless he needs the money in there. I wish you and Leo the best. I'm a happy SpinRite user. That's a good idea. I just like that idea. In fact, I may adopt that idea. Um, I mean, I do like using the PayPal service. Yeah. It's just annoying that I that you know they want to pull from my main checking account, and I hadn't. I don't know why I hadn't thought of just setting up an account for just PayPal. For yeah, pa- PayPal likes pulling from checking. You, they need the reason they even have my checking account information is that that's part of what you have to do to become certified. fully identified or yeah, certified yeah, or yeah. recognized or something. I mean, they really do push that on you. And so it's like, okay, fine, take this one. And I'm just going to move money as I need to into that. So keep a relatively low balance, PayPal pulls from it, and then you, re- you replenish it as necessary. I think that's a, that's a useful solution. So I, I wanted to share that. I have that. to say, I'm not fond of uh, PayPal in so many ways. And yet it is, you know, the most convenient way uh, for us to get donations to the, to the, yeah. to the network. So we continue to use it. I'd, I'd love to find an alternative though. I guess Google payments, maybe Amazon payments. Yeah, um, it's it's, it's going to happen. Ultimately, I think somebody will come along and uh, but PayPal has a huge edge because, you know, they're they were there. So, you know, right off the bat. Right. Uh, moving on to Jason D. Bill in Southampton, UK. He provides an important update on PayPal security tokens. Uh, that's what that's that little football that we've been using. Yep. I love my little football. And I, that's that's one of my security devices I have not gotten tired of. I've yeah, got mine yeah. hooked up to my PayPal account. It's really, really handy. Um, so he says, hi, Steve. First up, many thanks for the excellent uh, website and podcast. I can't express how useful they've been to me in recent years. Uh, I just thought I'd drop you a quick note to point out that PayPal security tokens are now available outside the U.S. Yeah, these were available only in the uh, U.S. for a while. He says, yeah, yes. Well, in fact, we disappointed a lot of users because I didn't realize that was the excited. case. <laughs> and we immediately got mail saying, hey, I can't, right. you know, I can't get it where I am. Right. So, so apparently, and I wanted to bring this again to the attention of all of our listeners, that I, I don't know exactly where they're available, but, uh, you know, they're still very inexpensive. Um, you know, he said he ordered his for about three pounds, which is about $5 US, so it's about the same price, super affordable. It's a token and, uh, price because it costs them, if you forgive the pun, it costs them, <laughs> uh, it costs them more to make it than that. Yeah. So that's just really to encourage you to buy it, but they want to give you some price to kind of make sure you're going to use it. Yeah, so any of our any of our listeners who have been disappointed that they could not get the PayPal token wherever they are, you may want to check again because uh, at least we know it's in the UK and it may be many other places as well, which would be really terrific. I, you know, this is today some good news. Both Visa is going to start doing those. It's the same idea that token uh, card. I'm I'm really glad to see more and more of that. That's yeah, these things seem to take a long time to happen, but you know, it's really something we we desperately need because we want to facilitate secure and safe internet commerce. Yeah, absolutely. Steve, we've come to the end of our 12 questions. 12 questions good and true. We thank all of you. We do this every other episode. You can always ask more questions of Steve by going to uh, grc.com/feedback. Feedback. Uh, and a great place to put your feedback. Of course, he has security forums. You can go there to find out more uh, as well um, and to ask questions on the security forums. In fact, grc.com is a great resource all around. Besides Shields Up, there's lots of other free utilities. Of course, there's the great SpinRight, 
which uh, everybody ought to buy just just because it's the hard drive maintenance utility. You got to have that. Um, and uh, you also find 16 kilobit versions of the show there, transcripts, every episode we've ever done. It's all at GRC.com, the Gibson Research Corporation. Steve, thank you so much. Always a pleasure, Leo. And next week, we're going to have Ronan on. Oh, that'll be fun. Uh, the author of Sandboxy to tell us uh, about, uh, you know, the the product in more detail, the, the challenges he's had to overcome, and uh, answer some questions. Very good. Thank you, Steve Arino. Talk to you then, Leo. Bye-bye. Security now.